So fourth grade was uh, kind of a tough year in school for me. Uh, and not just because I had this haircut and wore turtlenecks. Uh, it was because I was bullied by a kid in my school who was older and bigger and meaner than me. It seemed like every day this kid was chasing me or trying to punch me or threaten to hurt me in some way. It was my goal that year just to, to stay away from him. And I remember one day on the playground, he chased me down, he grabbed a hold of my jacket and he was hitting me and I couldn't get away. I was helpless. But a teacher, she saw us out there and she came out of her classroom and she shouted at him, hey, stop that now. And in that moment, I felt so relieved because I was rescued from this bully's aggression. She had stripped him of his power. I mean, after all, you can't hit a kid while a teacher's watching. And I knew this. And so I started kicking him. He wasn't gonna hit me anymore, but I started kicking him really, really hard. This was the chance that I never had before. I had this teacher protecting me from him, and now I was free to pay him back for all the torment that he put me through. But now, the teacher's walking over to us, and she was yelling at me. She grabbed us both, she escorted us to the principal's office, and we both got in trouble for fighting. And I thought that was kind of unfair. I mean, didn't they realize that I was the victim here? I was just helping them distribute the justice that was due in the schoolyard. Well, apparently not. They explained to both of us that there should be no fighting whatsoever at their school and that we were both wrong. This is the problem with power. When you get a hold of some, it can be very tempting to become just like the violent person who was just wielding their power over you. Well, in the story of the Exodus, God rescues his people from their tormentors in Egypt. And not so they can trade places with them and now become the slave masters, but so that they can be set apart as a kingdom of priests and God's holy nation with a divine identity and purpose. And this will require them to trust in God more than any other power, including their own power. As we listen to the Exodus story, as we continue on in our series, One Kingdom Indivisible, we're going to talk about how we can live up to God's expectation that his people trust in him and resist the temptation to wield power, whether it's political power, financial or majority power, and fulfill our calling to be a blessing to others. And specifically today, we're going to look at what does this look like for American Christians? Well, the story of the Exodus is a beautiful and rich story. There's so much going on there. And it's also really, really long. So this morning, I'm going to let the guys from the Bible Project summarize about 20 chapters of Exodus with this video. The book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now, that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's Exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. 
Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this of his own will. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all of these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he has lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happens next. With the final plague, it's the night of Passover, and God turns the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, so God will kill the firstborn in Egypt with a final plague. But unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the lamb. And here the story stops and introduces us in detail to the annual Israelite ritual of Passover. On the night before Israel left Egypt, they sacrificed a young spotless lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe of their house. And when the divine plague came over Egypt, the houses covered with the blood of the lamb were passed over and the sun spared. And so every year since, the Israelites have reenacted that night to remember and to celebrate God's justice and his mercy. 
But Pharaoh, because of his pride and rebellion, he loses his own son. And he's compelled to finally let the Israelites go free. And so the Israelite slaves make their exodus from Egypt. But no sooner do they leave that Pharaoh changes his mind. And he gathers his army and chases after the Israelites for a final showdown. As the Israelites pass through the waters of the sea safely, Pharaoh charges towards his own destruction. The Exodus story concludes with the first song of praise in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea. And the final line declares that the Lord reigns as king. And then the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in his world and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God is going to bring his people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. So after the Israelites sing their song, the story takes a sharp turn. The Israelites, they're trekking through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, and they're hungry, they're thirsty, and they start criticizing Moses and God for even rescuing them. They say they long for the good old days in Egypt. I mean, it's crazy. So God graciously provides food and water for Israel in the wilderness, but these stories, they cast a dark shadow. And we begin to wonder, could it be that Israel's heart is just as hard as Pharaoh's? We shall see. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Exodus. So the Hebrew people that God chose way back with Abraham to be a blessing to all nations, they're now slaves. They're living under the thumb of cruel oppressors in Egypt. Once they had power and comfort and safety and security when Joseph was tight with Pharaoh, but now they're powerless. And then God rescues them and he reinstates their identity as his chosen and beloved people. He says, you're not slaves anymore. But you're also not the new powerful regime taking Egypt's place. Remember, the Hebrews aren't given power over Egypt so they can immediately go out and oppress others and continue the tradition of slave labor. They're made free for a purpose so that they can meet God in the wilderness and be with him. This is a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible from beginning to end. God wants a relationship with his people. And he wants them to trust in him alone. Exodus 14, 31 says, And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. They put their trust in God. They came to believe that God was the most powerful advocate they needed. And they discovered that God had a job for them to do. And, and we'll see that in just a minute. So they traveled to Mount Sinai, which is where Moses gets the Ten Commandments. But before the Ten Commandments are given, God says this to his people. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. A kingdom of priests. Priests, now you need to know, are the people who communicate with God. They're the go-between for God and the people. And once the tabernacle and the temple are established later on, priests are the ones with the special job there of making sacrifices and offering prayers. It reminds me of a time, uh, the times that I've been a counselor or a director for a teen camp at daybreak. 
All the staff and the volunteers, they show up early for training. And just before the campers arrive on Sunday afternoon, we give everybody a job. Some people, uh, you go help out at the registration desk. Some people put on neon vests and they help direct the traffic. They get a cool walkie-talkie that they get to use while people are driving in. But we've always designated two or three people whose sole job it was to pray with every carload of campers that arrived. Your whole job was to stop cars when they arrived and pray for the campers and the parents and any siblings and to bless them. They were sort of the priests of camp for the afternoon. A nation of priests and a holy nation. The word holy simply means set apart. God tells them, this is who you are. You're not slaves anymore. You're not a punching bag for the bullies anymore. You are mine. You are a treasured possession. God's beloved people charged with the purpose of helping all nations know and do the will of their creator. And there are actually a lot more than just 10 commandments. Some people don't know this, uh, that God gives to the Israelites. You can read them throughout the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And many of these commandments God gives have to do with caring for the poor. Some of them say, don't take advantage of the widow or the orphan. Don't deny justice to the poor. Let the poor have some of your crops from your field when you're harvesting. Care for the stranger and the alien and on and on and on. God's kingdom of priests are tasked to use their power to care for those with no power. And God tells his people, this is your job. Trust in my power, live in my kingdom, under my reign, and carry out your calling as a holy kingdom of priests. We should pause right here and ask ourselves, how well do we do that? How well do we use our freedom to care for others? I have to admit, I didn't do it on the playground. I was rescued and I immediately started kicking that boy because I wanted to make sure that I was never powerless again. And I think we do that sometimes when our power and our safety, our freedoms are threatened. We lash out. We become like our enemies. It's hard to trust God more than any other power out there, including our own power. And it's easy, uh, especially during seasons of change, to lose our trust in God and to rely on something that's more tangible, like brute force, like military strength or dividing walls, or the economy, or political leaders, or laws, or policies. And some Christians trust more in America than they trust in the Lord. Or they think that trusting in America is the same thing as trusting in the Lord. And I know people who feel a desperate need for Christians to be in positions of power and have political power. They say things like, we can't be powerless again which is one of the reasons the election season is so stressful and so volatile, because we think there's a lot riding on this. God's people have had a tricky relationship with power. Sometimes it's used to bless, and sometimes it's used to oppress. In the Bible, power kind of comes and goes for God's people. They'll have land and wealth and armies and influence, and then it'll get taken away, and then somebody else will have power for a while. God's temple is destroyed and then rebuilt, and then it's destroyed again. And nation after nation captures and rules in Jerusalem, all while God's people are sitting there wondering, when will we regain our power? And this was a big question during the life and ministry of Jesus, too. When do we get to hit back? That's the question that I wanted an answer to that day on the playground. 
But Jesus shows us that that's the wrong question. Jesus is the ultimate example of trusting God's power over our own. Jesus could have wielded power against his enemies. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and, and set him free from the cross. But he trusted in God the Father, and he gave his life. He paid the ransom for us. And like Israel, Christianity has a tricky relationship with power, too. Christianity was made the official religion of the Roman Empire in 380 AD after Emperor Constantine was converted earlier that century, and it gave it quite a bit of power for several centuries. And it did a lot of good with this power, but it also wielded that power at times in ways that didn't live up to its calling to be a holy kingdom of priests, to be a blessing to all nations. And the same is true of Christianity in America. American Christians have done a lot of good with the support and the power of the U.S. government behind them. But, at times, we have not lived up to our calling to be a holy kingdom of priests and a blessing to all nations. There are people in our church who can remember a time when the majority of Americans were Christians. It seemed like people used to care more about what Christians care about. At work on Mondays, people would talk about the sermon that they heard on Sunday. Todd Bolsinger even cites an article from the LA Times in 1963 that printed a list of daily scripture readings for the week. Can you imagine seeing a list of daily Bible readings in a major newspaper today? Those were different times. Each year in the past few decades, the numbers in the U.S. show that fewer and fewer Americans believe in God or follow Jesus, or go to church, and they live their lives not based on Christian principles. Christianity losing the majority position in America can feel like it's losing its power altogether. And I know that this is a concern for a lot of folks at Tri-Valley. We say, man, we really need to get that power back. We need to win back the vote. We need to get back to the way things used to be. Even though there are a lot of black Americans and other minorities who would say, yeah, that golden age, it wasn't so golden. But trust me, I understand that desire to get that government support back so that you don't have to feel powerless, so that you don't have to experience being punched on the playground by bullies ever again. But think about this. Christianity didn't have the support of any empire behind it before the fourth century and Constantine, right? So we should ask ourselves, what was it doing for its first 300 years? Well, it was thriving. It was growing without Constantine's help, without any worldly superpower behind it. There were 10,000 Christians by the end of the first century. There were 200,000 by the end of the second century. And by the time of Constantine, there were 6 million Christians. It grew exponentially despite Christians having no power and despite being arrested and burned and fed to wild animals. How is that possible? There are an estimated 100 million Christians in China right now where the Christian faith has been illegal or suppressed for decades. How is that possible? Thousands of African slaves in the United States became Christians hearing the gospel in worship services conducted by men who mistreated them and who owned them as property. We should ask again, how is that possible? Church buildings in California have been shut down for weeks and months now, but even now, in Livermore, people are coming to know Jesus Christ for the first time. How is that possible? 
Well, we can ask the Israelites at Mount Sinai, and they'll tell us. It's God's power. God is at work whether or not the governments of the earth support that work. Our calling to be a kingdom of priests comes from God, and our trust is in him alone. Psalms 20 says this, Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Christians trust in this more than they trust any government power. I once heard a preacher say, you know, I love my country, but I don't put my trust in my country. I put my trust in God. I think that's a good reminder for us. Love your country. Yes, serve your country. Absolutely. Vote. Be a good citizen. In fact, next week we're going to see God working through civic leaders during the time of the exile. But put your trust in God. And know that he is at work no matter who is wielding power. No matter how many Bible verses are in the LA Times and no matter what the laws say. And this is important for us to get because here's what's going to happen very soon. It's the same thing that happens every 4th November. One candidate is going to win and another candidate is going to lose. One political party will gain some ground and one party will lose some ground. People will be shocked and upset about the outcome. People will threaten to move to Canada and others will celebrate and they will gloat and they'll get really, really excited for the next two to four years. These are going to be the best years yet, they'll say. But do you know what God's people are going to do? They're going to work together. They're going to bless and not curse. They're going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, trusting in God's power and caring for those who have no power. Next week, we're going to look at the period in Israel's history called the exile. And we'll see what happens when Israel's power as a nation is completely stripped away. The power shifts, it changes, but the mission remains the same. Right now, we're going to do three things together as we close out this morning. One, we're going to pray a different kind of prayer. It's a prayer that requires trust in God because it's a prayer of surrendering ourselves to the Lord. You know, we often pray a lot of prayers for comfort and for success, for things that will make our lives safe, and, and that's, that's all fine. But this prayer we're going to pray together says, Lord, give me whatever it is that I need, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And then, number two, we're going to declare our trust in God in a new song that comes straight from the scripture that we just read, Psalms 20. Some people trust in chariots, some people trust in horses, but we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So we're gonna pray this prayer, then we're gonna sing this song. And finally, number three, after worship today, I wanna to invite you uh, to give me some feedback on how these messages in this series have been hitting you so far. You know, if we were together here in the building, if you were sitting in our, our burgundy chairs, I could see your faces. I could see your body language. I'd receive comments from you in the lobby after worship, but I don't get any of that in our current format. And I don't want this series to just be me throwing ideas out there and assuming that everyone is on board with them, because you might not be. You may have some questions. You may be challenged by this. You may not agree with some of the things that I'm saying here. 
So I want to invite you to a Zoom room, a video chat, where you can ask some of these questions. Right after worship, we're going to make this chat available. I'll put the link in the, the chat over here, so you can just click on that, and it should take you right to a room where you'll see faces and be able to talk to people about this. And I really, I want to get your feedback. I want you to respond to what God has put before us together from, uh, from his word as a congregation. So let's do those three things now. We'll start with this prayer. Please pray this out loud with me. I am no longer my own, but yours, God. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen.